The scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 23, which you just heard sung for you, but you're going to hear it again. And Steve and Barb are going to help me this morning as we read this reader's theater style. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible or in the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 23. The text won't be on the screen this morning, so I invite you to listen and imagine the scene with me. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of people was praying outside Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, it is that time again. It is the time when adults, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, godparents, ask children, what do you want for Christmas? This was a pretty easy question to answer when I was a kid. It was the days of the Sears catalog. Do you remember that? Do you remember getting the Sears catalog in the mail? Okay, so some of you younger children and 
Gen Zers. This was a giant catalog about this thick with different sections in it, like clothes and tools and hardware, but the best section was the toys. And my siblings and I would have to take turns looking at this catalog, and we'd each be given a different color marker by our parents. There were four of us, and so with your color, you could mark, like check or circle what you wanted. One year, I remember marking uh, a leather sewing kit and red and white slippers, and I got them both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want? I mean, this is a, a question we ask about gifts, but really it's a deeper question. And I'm not talking about needs. I'm not talking about food and warmth. I mean, we biologically need these things to live. They are needs. But once you're fed and warm, then what? What do you really want? What is your heart's desire? Now, there's, there's different types of desires, actually. There's what's called thin desires. This has nothing to do with body size. This is thin desires are like what you want for Christmas. A leather sewing kit, a gift card, a new phone, some decorations bought at Tiffany's. These are thin desires. We call them this because they really don't fulfill us long term. They're flimsy. They change. I mean, have you ever lost a gift card? Or you buy something and then in six months it rips? Or the, the leather sewing needle breaks? Or your style changes? Or you learn about diamond, diamond mining practices and, and you're kind of less interested in jewelry? Thin desires are quickly fulfilled, and pretty easily too, but they also quickly and easily lose their luster. But then there are the thicker desires, the more robust desires. Like, it's nice to get a Christmas gift from a loved one, but it's better to have a loved one. Maybe your deeper desire is, is to make things better or influence behavior or make a mark on the world around you. Maybe deeply you want to collaborate with others on something that matters. These are robust desires. They last. Now, sometimes we might feel kind of bad because we desire. We wonder if it will ever be fulfilled. But I'll tell you, to desire is to be human. That's part of our condition. And it's neutral. It's not bad or good. And Jesus knows this. He asks this question. In John 1, 38, Jesus says, what do you want? What would you answer if Jesus asked you this? I am guessing you wouldn't say red and white slippers or a gift card or a place in Naples. I'm guessing you wouldn't say that to Jesus. The reality of desire is as true for us as it was for the biblical characters in the first century. I mean, sometimes it can seem like the people in the Bible are really different from us, right? Like different language, different customs and cultures, different worldviews. But fundamentally, we are so much more alike than we think. We desire just like they do. 
And so this Advent, we are going to be exploring the theme of desire through the Christmas narratives. We're going to do this so that we have models for our own desires, because we learn desires from others. This is why advertising works. And we can see these models and then follow them or reject them, but learn something from them. So we begin today with Zechariah, and by now you've heard this story two times and you know everything about it. What we learn about Zechariah is that he wants a child. He and his wife have no children. Childlessness was greatly stigmatized in the ancient world. And in the Jewish tradition, and I will say in our Christian context too, children are considered a gift of God. And having children, husbands and wives join God in his creating work by making more image bearers of God. But Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they didn't have a baby. The, the author of Luke notes very clearly that this couple was righteous. And, it, and it's clear about this so that the reader knows that, that this couple didn't have children, but it wasn't their fault. It wasn't because they had sinned. It wasn't because God was punishing them for sin. They were righteous, both of them. And they just don't have kids. And they're sad about it. But even more than the sadness, they experience great shame. This stigma has great shame attached to it in the first century. And Pastor Lars will be talking more about that next week. Zechariah wants a child. But his life goes on. He's a priest. And so when it's his turn to go to the temple in Jerusalem, he is chosen for a very, very special honor to go into the holy place and burn incense. And again, the text moves through this very quickly, but this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. He's, he has studied his whole life for this. He's heard about how it is from other priests who's, who's done it. And then finally, lo and behold, he draws the short straw or whatever they're doing to cast lots. And he's chosen. And so here he is. Zechariah getting on in years, doing his job in the holy place. And he, he cleans the, the incense altar. It wasn't very big. It was just... He cleans it up, you know, incense makes a mess. <laughs> and he offers fresh incense. It probably wouldn't have taken very long. There were just two other pieces of furniture in there to clean up. But still, this is a holy moment, a holy time, a holy place. And you would expect that if one thought that something holy was going to happen, it would happen here. And it does. Lo and behold, an angel appears, and Zechariah is afraid. I mean, I'd be afraid. You'd probably be afraid too. And the angel delivers a message. So here's the message in bullet points that I'll tell you. The angel says, God's heard your prayer for a child. Elizabeth is going to have a son. You will name him John. You're going to be very happy about this. <laughs> He'll be a great kid. Extra special, actually. And also, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even when he's in the womb. That's not normal. 
And this son, John, he's going to be a preacher. And because of his words, like the ancient prophet Elijah, people are going to change. Disobedient kids, they'll start obeying. The wicked, they're going to become righteous. People are going to get ready for God to come. And I think this is too much for Zechariah to handle. And so this priest, who has this holy privilege, he has the most status of anyone in the Christmas narrative, with the exception of Herod and the Magi. He has one line. Did you notice that when Steve was reading? Right? The priest has one line. One line. How can I be sure of this? He asks. I ain't no spring chicken and neither is the missus. How can I be sure? How can I know? Zechariah wants to know. He wants proof. He wants Gabriel to pull out his magic chalkboard and do that sort of beautiful mind figuring, you know what I'm talking about from that old movie, with all the equations and all the answers, and this points to that, and this means that, and he wants him to prove it. Zechariah wants certainty. How can I know? I think he's kind of bold. He's talking back to an angel. I don't know. I don't think I'm better than Zachariah, but I don't think I'm bold enough. I, I think I'd, I'd be like, um, yes, sir, thank you, sir, that sounds good, and I would just doubt on the inside. I wouldn't articulate it. Right? We might just fake it, but Zachariah, he's just out there. How can I know? But do you notice, Gabriel doesn't give him a clarifying response. He doesn't say, because of this and this and this and this. Gabriel reiterates who he is. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. It's my job to tell you this stuff, and you don't believe, so instead you're going to be silent. And maybe Zechariah tried to say something else, and he couldn't. Because the silence is the proof. And meanwhile, everyone else is outside the temple, wondering what's going on. It's, it's taken too long. I hope he didn't die in there. It is the holy place, actually. And then Zechariah comes out, and, and he can't tell them what happened because he can't talk, so he has to make these signs. And, and then he goes home, and Gabriel's words come true, and Elizabeth gets pregnant. We didn't read this part, but this is what happens next. And the whole time, Zachariah can't talk. I've been thinking about that this week. I have, I have carried two babies full term, nine months. And there are ups and downs about being pregnant. And truthfully for me, it was mostly ups. But like a billion to one, I would rather be pregnant than silent for nine months. I just am going to say that. That sounds very hard. That sounds kind of horrible. And it's all because Zechariah wants to know. How can I be sure? How can I know? And I actually think a lot of us want that kind of certainty too. We want certainty. We want someone to pull out that beautiful mind chalkboard and just prove it all. We want someone to show us we're right. Signed, sealed, delivered, here it is. But Gabriel did not do that. 
He doesn't go out and take the Isaiah scroll and draw lines and arrows pointing to the prophetic verses about Jesus coming. Instead, he reiterates who he is. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I think this is because some types of knowledge are not based on a chalkboard full of figures. Some knowledge is based on relationships. God gives the message to Gabriel. Gabriel delivers it to Zechariah. This is a path of trust. And for much of our knowledge, I would say, we can know fundamentally because we can trust. Now, this is a a brief uh, history of philosophy, but since the Enlightenment, human beings overall have considered knowledge to be something that can be empirically proven using the scientific method, using our senses. Sight, hearing, tasting, smelling. Can it be empirically proven? And so when we're faced with a crisis of knowledge, which sometimes the Christian story can be a crisis of knowledge at times, we might look for proof, just like Zachariah did. But I want you to know today that All knowledge, some does, but all knowledge doesn't work like that. All knowledge isn't based on proof. Here's a great example. Think about when you got into a car to drive here this morning, or if you walked here the last time you got into a car. So you trust the work your mechanic did the last time. Otherwise, you would get a new mechanic, right? You trust that the other drivers, no matter how infrequently they signal in the Chicago area, won't randomly go into reverse while in the left turn lane at 55th and Garfield. You trust that. You trust that the opposing cars will stay in their lane. You trust them, and they trust you. Now, it's not a perfect system. We get into accidents sometimes, but that's not normal. That's why it's called an accident. And and this system of trust works most of the time, and it's based on trust. And even if you're like, actually, you're crazy. I actually don't trust them at all. I'll tell you, if you got in a car and drove here, your behavior shows that you trust them. You trust that system. And if we can trust drivers that we don't know, that demonstrates we have the ability to trust without proof. True knowledge requires trust. Knowing anything deep and life-changing, especially requires trust in wise guides. Gabriel serves as a wise guide for Zechariah. What Gabriel said came to pass, as it says in scripture. Gabriel is a wise authority in Zechariah's quest to know. And he's right. Gabriel is right. Now, the Zechariah narrative is interrupted by the Mary story in Luke, but a few verses on, still in chapter 1, The narrator turns the camera back onto the priest after his son is born. And this time, rather than one measly sad line, he sings a whole song. We're going to sing it at the end of the service. He ends the song in prophecy, taking what Gabriel has said and adding to it. And Zachariah sings, And you, my child, as he holds baby John, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge 
of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Zechariah has moved from desiring a son to desiring certainty to desiring salvation. He describes God's work as tender mercy. Do you see that? I wonder if Zechariah's nine-month gestation of knowledge led him deeply into an experience of God's mercy. His hymn speaks of a great confidence in the ongoing work of the Lord, work past, present, and future. Zechariah wanted proof, but what he got was trust in God's word. What do you want? Do you desire certainty? Do you desire proof, just like Zechariah? I like to listen to the radio. I have this rather beautiful one in my living room. I don't have a picture of it, sorry. I really like to listen to WDCB, which is a jazz station out of Glen Ellen. But in certain seasons of the year, reception at my house is really hard. There's sometimes a ton of fuzziness, and I feel sad. I know I could listen to it on my phone, streaming it, but I prefer radio. This, the station, I don't think it has a really strong signal, like some of the ones out of Chicago, and sometimes if I touch the dial just a smidge, I can lose the whole thing. Now, if I knew radios, like my grandpa, who worked on radios during World War II, I bet I could get it to work more easily. It's like the radio needs a master to tune it, but I'm not a radio engineer. I think sometimes that all of us are a little like a radio. Our desire needs to be tuned, and we can't tune ourselves. There's that hymn. We didn't sing it today, but we sing it frequently. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. But I I get my desire wrong. I can't tune it. My desire by itself is, is thin and flimsy. I want proof when really God wants me to trust his word. And I think all our desire needs to be tuned. And we can't tune it by ourselves. Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't think this means that God is going to give you what you want. I think it means that God will reform your desires to be his desires. He'll tune them. But this tuning requires our trust. So maybe you today feel a little bit like Zechariah. Maybe you desire certainty. Maybe you want to know, to know if this stuff, this stuff about God and Jesus This stuff is real. You want to know and and see proof that Jesus really died and rose from the dead. If the Bible is really trustworthy for faith and doctrine and conduct, how can I be sure, you ask? We can learn truth from following wise guides and trustworthy sources, including scripture. But it's not just about our knowing. It's about God's knowing. There's a really awesome moment in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when the 
the families who, who took the course with me have been reading these. And uh, in it, Eustace and his cousin Edmund have a conversation about Aslan. Aslan is the Jesus character in the book. And Eustace says, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, says Eustace, Edmund, he knows me. He knows me. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea who saved me and saved Narnia. Sometimes we want to know, but even more than our desire to know is our desire to be known. And friends, God knows you. Not in some creepy Santa Claus, he sees you when you're sleeping kind of way. But the way a painter knows his canvas or a composer knows her symphony. God knows us like a mother knows the chubby arms of her baby or a violinist knows his bow. God knows us. Sometimes we want to know, and and this is a desire, but even more than that, we might need to be known. And the one who knows us is the one who made us, Jesus. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want to know? Do you want proof? Do you want to be known by the one who made you? I invite you to ponder this question this Advent. We're actually going to start off right here and now in a time of silence. I know this can be hard for some of us, but don't worry, it's not nine months. It could be a lot worse. And so in this time of silence, I want you to ask some questions for yourself first and God second. And there's a slide so we won't forget the question. First, what do I want? What's my deepest desire and longing? And then, in prayer, ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want me to desire? What do you want me to want? Let's pray together in silence.